Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week, we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book, we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way, we're not going to follow a scripted, organized discussion, but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind, and more importantly, ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself. Feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues, and with that, let's get on with this week's edition of Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Good morning, everyone. This is Frank Troyes from Unhedged, and thank you so much for listening into our podcast today. Interestingly enough, it's a slightly cloudy day today. We have some haze coming over from Indonesia, but that does not stop us from taking a trip today to Melbourne. And this morning, we're very, very pleased to have Jerry Ferguson with us from the RFI Group. Jerry, thanks so much for your time today. Not a problem, Frank. Thanks for having me. As you say, it's a lovely sunny day down here in Melbourne, so I'll try and bring the sunshine to our conversation. Well, please. I, 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 and I think everybody now is a little bit concerned. We have the F1 next week, or actually it's this week, excuse me, or this coming week. And uh, so it's always amazing at this time of the year. Somehow Singapore manages to get a clear sky ahead of that race. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah. I always like it because it's, it's on my birthday, Frank. So it's always a nice weekend in Singapore for me. Oh, nice. I didn't realize it was your birthday. So you're going to be 29 again. That's right. For the fourth time. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So, Jerry, one of the things I wanted to talk about today, uh, especially given everything going on here in region, is that uh, for our listeners, uh, and, and Jerry, keep in mind, our listeners are, are not necessarily industry folks. So um, you may hear me ask you a few questions that are a bit more explanatory. And, and I like to say that, uh, you know, my, my parents are listeners, so we, we, we need to make sure right. they can okay. follow us. Um, so big news here is that Singapore... Uh, recently announced that they're opening up the applications for what for their five Digibank licenses, which is which is big news. And if you don't mind, I, I wanted to focus on that today. And and before we get into the logistics of it, I think for our audience, you know, they know that I like bringing a gun to a knife fight. So can you give us kind of like a quick overview of of you know who you are and what you do, and then then we can get into the weeds on this Digibank stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thanks again for the opportunity. So um, my role is Managing Director of RFI Group across Asia Pacific. Uh, and very, very quickly, shameless plug time, uh, RFI Group, um, we spend a lot of time, we're a data-driven business intelligence firm exclusively focused on financial services. So all we do is talk to banks uh, and customers of banks about what's going on in the market. And as you rightly point out, um, we cannot get through a meeting across Asia or indeed globally these days without having a strong and frank discussion about where digital banking is heading. Um, 
with a lot of conversation more around, you know, what does this mean for the traditional branch network? What does this mean for a traditional bank? How do they approach this? How do they start to think about the the challenges that are coming through to the market? So these five licenses that are being announced in Singapore is really sending a bit of a ripple through um, the banking community. And we've seen the same thing happen up in Hong Kong uh, with the eight markets up there. So yeah, it's a very, very interesting time. But um, what we do as a company is try and help banks work through that um, with a bit of insight into what might the future look like um, from a banking perspective. You know, and 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 thank you for that. And I and I think you know the the, the firm has done a, a tremendous amount of good work on this. You know, you guys are are the go to folks as it relates to a, a lot of this in terms of all the counterparts. So selfishly, what's really great for our listeners is that um, to the degree that you can. I, I do want to start asking some specifics on, on uh, some of these. So just just to take a step back and correct me if I'm missing anything, the the licenses, the applications are open and they have to be submitted by December 31st. And then the plan is that they're going to be reviewed. And then June of next year, Singapore is going to announce who the five recipients are of, of uh, these licenses. And without getting into the minutia of the licenses just yet, Jerry, one of the things I would be interested in is why again, for our listeners, why is Singapore so relevant to this? And why all of a sudden, you know, because again, coming from the United States, people just look at Singapore. They, the last time they heard of it was when the, you know, Trump did his summit with Kim Jong-un. Right. Why is this significant here in Singapore in terms of what this initiative needs? Well, I, I think, and first of all, you're right, Frank, it's, it's a kind of looming deadline that they have. So people are scrambling around getting their license applications into place at the moment. Um, it's interesting that they, and we'll maybe talk about this a little bit later, that they've the licenses are not all equal. So there'll be a, a range of different licenses that are actually going to um, offer out to the market, which is an interesting side note, I think, to all of this in terms of how Singapore are looking at it as opposed to how Hong Kong have looked at it. Um, in terms of why Singapore is so central, I, I had a, a conversation the other day, and often we talk in, in Asia about the rivalries between Hong Kong and Singapore. Um, and someone was saying to me, do you know, is this a, a knee-jerk reaction to, to Hong Kong's um, licensing regime? And I, and I simply said, no, absolutely not. This is something that's been in Singapore's path for a long, long time. It's something they've been thinking about. And I think the biggest driver, Frank, is what the MAS has been doing in the background, um, trying to encourage Singapore to becoming a hub um, for finance generally, but specifically around digital uh, and fintech. Um, they're doing a lot of work in terms of signing MUAs, MOUs, sorry, with um, with the regionals, so all the ASEAN markets, uh, and a lot of those markets look to Singapore as a leader in terms of what can be done in this in this market. A couple of reasons for that, I think it's interesting. One, you've got two very very large dominant banks in the market, DBS and brackets POSB, which is the, the large former kind of um, government owned brand. Um, it dominates the market in terms of market share. Um, but interestingly, it's not been um, suffice to just sit on its heels. That's a bank that's really driving and has been nominated and in fact awarded the best digital bank in the world a couple of times recently. It's done a lot of work with their um, brand called Digibank, which they launched in India. And I think it's a, it's a bit of a nod to the fact that there is a market here that is open and ready um, for digital banking. However, um, I also think it's... Um, doing its best to try and drive competition and help the the region as a whole um, kind of step forward ahead of the rest of the globe in terms of what they can do for digital banking. 
Well, let's let's you said quite a bit there. So let's go back to an earlier point and let's go up to fifty thousand feet. The obviously Hong Kong did this before. So yes. wh- why now are institutions? really concerned about what's going on in Singapore, whereas with Hong Kong, it was interesting, but it's it, it's not getting the sense of, of concern. So what what's mm. different about what Singapore is doing relative to what Hong Kong did with almost on the surface, what looks like it's a similar thing? I mean, what, what's Singapore doing differently and why is this different? I think it's a little bit different because a they're they're limiting the types of licenses that they're, they're handing out um, whilst they are so the predominance of them will be full digital banking licenses. Um, some of them will only be payments licenses, which means the banks are limited in what they can actually do in terms of that banking offering. Uh, and then there's a wholesale component to that as well, where the banks are looking at um, being more wholesale providers. So um, slightly different from the logistics of, of that, from the, the sort of inner workings. But I think the biggest difference is that um, Singapore is looking to um, local players to really step up. Um, I think Hong Kong was a little bit more around, you know, bringing people into the country and, and making that. I think Singapore is looking to local players, again, from a branding perspective, to, to get local Singaporean companies um, to really kind of step up and, and take the lead here. Um, so I think they're really trying to just continually, as they do with a lot of things, they, they continue to try and push themselves and push the, the, the companies within their market to really um, step up. And how, how do we... And as we look at this, so in, in Hong Kong, when this happened, you, you had a, a huge group of, of uh, consortiums forming, yeah. like, like yeah. With, with some of the behemoths um, that, that were there. And, and I think you, you're drawing a, a very, very key distinguishing characteristic, which is this idea of local players. And I know that's a subtlety in the application that, that mm. you know, quote unquote, Singapore is very, very important in terms of who and what the entity is. How do we start to look at this? So I, I actually, in my ignorance this week, was corrected. I didn't think there were going to be that many applicants. I've, by last count, there's now 72 applications for the five yes. in, in terms of what's there. So big picture, you know, to the degree that you can, who do you see kind of jumping into the fray and what type of companies would be looking at this to, to say, I want to be part of this? Hmm. And then on the other end of this, I want to talk about you know, obviously Singapore is not going to have anything that presents a systemic risk to the system. Yeah. So, you know, one, you've got 72 wishful hopefuls that want to be in there. But two, who do you actually see at the end of the day, like is, is ultimately going to bubble to the surface and, and be one of the five? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question there, Frank, because what we're seeing, as you say, is a lot of players coming out of the work work and saying, hey, look, I can do I can do this or I'm going to have a, a crack at this. Um, to use an Australian phrase. Um, but what I think will probably happen is you'll see these people, it's more about just getting themselves on the radar. Um, you know, when we saw this in the UK, when a number of banking licenses were kind of opened up, a lot of people came forward and said, look at my capability, look at what I can do in the, the financial services. And remember, a lot of these are tech-based firms, so not, not a lot of these have much banking experience. Uh, a lot of these firms coming through are, are tech-based firms that are, are saying, you know, I want to get into the financial services um, realm. It's it's more about saying, you know, we have some sort of um, wonderful tech, we've got great client experience, uh, we want to expand into the financial services sector because we see that as a growth area um, for our business. So a, a lot of these firms, I think, are doing this as more of a radar play than an actual um, 
uh, apply to really sort of get themselves one of these licenses. And I think what you might see, Frank, is a couple of people starting to partner up. So the consortium thing may, in fact, come into play in, in Singapore as well. Uh, but I actually think for the most part, there's a couple of probably some favourites, I, I would say, um, that are coming through the, uh, the group. And I think if you look and think about some of the platforms that are out there um, who are looking to potentially move into financial services, indeed, maybe already have. So, you know, if you look at what happened up in Hong Kong, we didn't see WeChat Pay or Alipay as a, as a whole come into the market. But I think down here, um, they would certainly be looking at it. Um, but again, I'm not sure that they would they would make that play directly themselves. Um, where does that leave us? I think you've got the likes of Grab, Gojek, um, the two ride-sharing apps similar to Lyft um, and Uber, um, who also have food delivery on their service as well. And they also, by the way, have have a digital wallet built out. And I think the digital wallet play is, is really key to this. And I think that's where we'll see um, the strongest applications come through from. So I think about players like Razorpay, Favepay, uh, a few of the other wallets that have recently come out in, uh, in Singapore um, who will put forward a very, very strong case um, to be in there. Uh, and then the other side of the coin is obviously um, regional players in the telco space because I think you know, they already have the ability for people to trade airtime. They already have a good network of customers. Um, they, in some countries, have been experimenting with micro lending um, through airtime as well. So they have a little bit of domain expertise in financial services, but again, not a lot. So I think it'll be interesting to see how and who really puts their foot forward because uh, I think they're going to need quite a bit of upskilling in the, in the fintech space. You bring up an interesting point because it, to the degree when, when you mentioned the, the two Chinese behemoths, so the, the, and let me just play devil's advocate with you, is part, of, is part of the calculus here for the MAS, the concern that if nothing's done, they're not going to be able to, to have a counter relative to, to, to what you said in terms of um, the two Chinese platforms versus is this the opportunity for the MAS to say, okay, we're going to establish another standard or another or five other platforms uh, that aren't WeChat per se, and put ourselves in a position where, because again, I, I think one of the things our listeners should understand is that, you know, the market in Singapore is very small. This, this yes. is not a market that anybody's going to get very rich in. The reality is this is the for lack of a better word, this is the proof of concept for the region. So the assumption yes. for these applicants is that they're going to copy paste their model to Malaysia, Indonesia, et cetera. But is the MAS looking at this saying, okay, if we don't do anything, WeChat's going to come in and, and, they, and they can do this at massive scale versus do we now start to develop an ecosystem and community with five strong participants and now create some, for lack of a better word, some diversity or, or competition in the market? Is that part of, you think that's part of their calculus here? I, I think the latter point you made there around the competition is an interesting one because you're, as you rightly say, it's a, it is a small market and there's not a, there's not a huge amount of customers. Um, what it does have to its advantage is there are a lot of international customers coming into the market. So a lot of people see what is happening in Singapore from around the region when they travel here, when they do business here. Um, so I think a lot of it is, is, as you rightly say, they're saying, you know, we want to create a system here that, that it allows competition, but more importantly, allows strong providers to grow. Um, so I think 
it is definitely a bit of a nod to saying if we don't do anything, we might we might lose out um, to some of the large Chinese platforms. Um, and we want to, and Singapore has always been very sort of ambitious in that in that aspect as well. So I think we need to remember that. Um, so I think that it is a bit of a defensive play. It's interesting on the competition side um, when these licenses were announced. Priyash Gupta, who's the CEO of DBS, the largest bank in the market, effectively said, "Do you know what? We should welcome this. We should want people to be challenging us because." we always want to provide a better customer experience. And for me, the interesting part of all of this is the outcome will not necessarily be um, huge profits for these guys coming in. The outcome for this will be a greater experience for the customer because whatever happens, all the banks are going to have to step up. Um, and DBS have certainly said that they, they welcome this sort of challenge. And let, let, let's, let's pick it up there on... Um, uh because you bring up some very, very good points on DBS. Yeah, I was in a, a meeting last week where the joke in the room was that ironically, Piyush Gupta actually was the catalyst for this because he made a comment apparently at a conference saying that, you know, as Hong Kong goes, so, so will Singapore so with, with the Digibank licenses. How, how do you see this setting up though? Because if, let's just focus for a, for a second just on Singapore. So here you have DBS, Euromoney winner for all these Digibank awards. They just announced last week a, the launch of their, their digital wealth advisor or their version of a robo-advisor, um, you know, cutting edge, multiple awards, what have you. So let's say this is you and I. What can we possibly do in the Singaporean market, given DBS's dominance and the fact that they're a digital leader? So it would be kind of kind of wrong for us to say that, oh, there's all sorts of margin we can pull from. What's our, you know, so wear your RFI hat. You know, you were one of these applicants. What at the end of the day is available for you to attack, given that you have a competitive firm that that literally is the top firm, you know, and seen as that globally. So I mean, what, what could we possibly do to knock DBS down? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I think you've got, um, at the end of the day, when customers look at these sorts of, applications or new players to the market they kind of rank them on two or three key areas the one the first one is do i trust you as a brand um, and the difficulty for a lot of these players coming in under new banking licenses is that they don't have um you know the hundreds of years of brand presence that people like hsbc standard chartered dbs do um, in terms of keeping their money safe I mean, these guys have been supporting Singaporeans, DBS have been supporting Singaporeans from day one. Um, they are the ones that they keep their money safe. The POSB arm, which is the old savings bank, um, has a very strong relationship where they provide you know, strong savings accounts to the youth and that's how they grow their banking relationships. So you're very right in saying it's a very difficult market to kind of break into. Where we see disruption happening um, is on the fringes. Disruption happens where there's friction uh, in any market. So typically when we see new players come into the market around payments or investments or savings. Now, savings is typically a, uh, a price play. So we'll give you a nice experience, but we'll pay a little bit more on your savings accounts. People are going to have to try and go up against DBS in that if they want to win over savings accounts customers, um, which means they need to have deep pockets. Um, on the payment side, again, Singapore have done a great um, bit of work launching the Faster Payments Network out here, which means that 
you know, people can basically send money to anybody from any bank account um, instantly, uh, as well as sending that to vendors. So immediately the kind of um, the realm of areas for disruption narrows down um, for these players to come in. So then what we have to start thinking about is what are the peripheral services that they can offer around that banking account? Because if, if to a customer, if it's not faster, if it's not better, and if it's not um, a sleeker experience, then really I'm probably not going to bother with it. And that's something that we see through our data regularly is that the reason customers are interested in fintech is because they think it's going to save them money, they think it's going to be a lot easier to use, uh, and they think it's going to give them generally a better experience. The barriers to using it is that I don't understand who you are, I don't trust you with my money, uh, and ultimately I don't think you're going to give me wider value. And I think the value opportunity is the key one here. So for DBS, they're in a very strong position, obviously. They have a great product. Uh, they've got a breadth of product which some of these new players perhaps won't have. So where they will have to come in is a very niche area, hit that hard, find a friction point in the market, and then grow out from there. You know, that, and that's a really, really interesting dilemma because the one of the criteria, as you know, is for these applications is that the applicant has to present profitability so this this yes. can't be a, a a so now and again it was interesting this week because i i had the opportunity to play devil's advocate with a few people and i said okay let's assume for example you were uh you, you had a grab account and at the same time it's a financial services again it could be you know all the above mm. it could be a savings account it could be an investment account what have you and i asked folks i said okay so you're in your grab vehicle and your investment accounts at grab and you notice that WeWork just took a 50% haircut on its IPO. How concerned are you about Grab? You know, Grab being another SoftBank company. Yeah. And it was interesting to your point on the branding, where, 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 you know, on the one hand, folks are aware that for the some of these new participants, that they're subsidizing the business. So to so to your point, you know, could they offer a higher yielding cash account and subsidize that? Short term, they could. But the flip side of that is that everyone deep down, to your point, in terms of branding, trust, and, and kind of the institutionalization of, of these firms, they know at the end of the day that DBS truly is a backstop yeah. in, in, in the system. So, so if you were Piyush, what, what would you, what do you do? So let's assume, you know, you've got, if we focus just on the two ride shares, you have two entities that have right now have enormous cash. Uh, can clearly subsidize the business because the, the subtlety to what you're saying is, and again, I'm just focusing on the ride shares, for, but it could be any one of the applicants. Yeah. At the end of the day, they have to convince a customer to move. That customer has to move from point, you know, from DBS to them, and they have to keep them. Mm. They have to keep hammering a value proposition that's causing them to stay. So, so if you're Piyush, is, is, is this the type of thing where you say, okay, the, to your point, there's 10 things that we're doing. Three of them are kind of areas of friction. Do you cover cover that do you do you rally the troops and say okay let's let's remove our achilles heel or do you just say no at the end of the day they're going to end up subsidizing that activity and it's moot you know three years they won't be there it doesn't matter i mean what what do you do if you're dbs yeah look i think i think if if i'm dbs i ignore any new market market entrance at my peril i think you cannot and they won't they simply won't sit back and, and say look these guys are probably a, a, a minor annoyance for a couple of years and then hope they go away um everything that the bank is doing is set up to 
create a better customer experience across the board. And I think that's the really important part. What they're doing very well is, is looking at different parts of the business and they're just making sure that that customer experience, whether that's digital or face-to-face, so they're, they're not closing down branches either. That's the important point, um, I think, here, because what we see, doesn't matter what age you are, even though these 18 to 24-year-old kids are very, very au fait with digital, they're on their mobiles all the time. Banks like DBS know that there is going to come a point where they want to go and talk to someone and their branch network is still very, very important. Um, So I think they need to focus on ensuring that that customer experience and that value proposition stays at the very top of its game across the board. doesn't matter what touch point they have with the customer, um, they need to push that. The other point, I think, and this is where it starts to get really interesting with open banking and open data coming through, um, is really understanding what you can do with the data that's available to you. And to your point around the ride-sharing apps, I think that's what they do very, very well. They understand what their customers are doing and preempt a lot of that activity. Um, mm-hmm. I think the banks need to focus on doing that a lot more. Um, they're already doing it, but I think they need to focus on doing that a lot more. You know, and, it, and it's it, it, it's interesting to your point on um, on that. In, in that, uh, you know, that is kind of the stealth missile in this is is the uh, AI machine learning component of this yep. where, where you are right on the rideshare side, I would say they are years ahead of the banks and, and um, you know, and that, that is a key, key value proposition that it would take, I think it would take Piyush quite yeah. some time to get DBS to that point. And uh, it's an interesting one, Frank, because if you think about a few years ago, everybody was worried about Apple or Facebook becoming a bank. That was the big conversation. Um, whether it was Gaffer, one of the Gaffers would become a, a bank at some point um, because they were so worried about how well they utilised their own data um, to understand what their customers are doing. Now, they obviously didn't do that because of a number of reasons and we won't go into why Facebook didn't uh, end up doing that. But um, I think for the ride-sharing apps, it's the one thing that they do really, really well. They understand their customers. They have a great digital experience and they've already dipped their toe in financial services to an extent, as you say. So um, I think they'll be an interesting one to watch for sure. Let, let's take this a, a step further and let's let's let the uh, geeky part of our resumes actually start to come out here a little bit. So let's assume for a second that you're one of these participants and and you have your own core banking technology stack that you have and and, and let's assume it's a pure tech play yep. that that's there so you you have um without naming names you have some participants that are you would never think would ever want to become a, a bank and they're looking at this saying okay i probably should do this it's it's the next natural thing plus they're probably getting a nudge from tomasek to do it yeah and at the same time, they have no core technology to to do this. One of the other phenomenons that, that we've seen, and I'd be interested in your perspective on this, is that, again, without getting too technical, I, I refer to this as the logos and the boxes. So now, as participants are looking at this, they're saying, okay, I need the ability to take deposits. I need the ability to have trading. I need the ability to have wealth. So they have all these boxes in their tech stack that they need to fill. Mm. And it seems that finally, the Americans have realized this is our last opportunity in Southeast Asia. And the assumption being that once the decisions are made in terms of who the primary providers are 
for these tech stacks that if you aren't there with your logo in a box, you're not going anywhere. You know, so whereas before it was a very, you know, the, the, you had all of these fintech companies providing all these disparate, like what I'll call features that were there. Yep. And they were one-off features, yep. but, you know, put the institution in a position to say, hey, I want to do free trading. And then, you know, there was a, you put a logo in a box and you off you go. Now, however, it seems that battle lines are being drawn where, where it's like, if I'm the institution, I'm saying, hey, I need that free trading component now. And by the way, I'm going to sign an exclusive deal with you. Yeah. I'm the only institution that you're going to use in the region. Is this really, uh, you know, in terms of the consortiums and the partnerships that are there, should should technology participants start? I mean, and what I see is they already see it. But I'm I, at the same time, I don't think they really understand how significant this is. I've, I've told many folks, like, look, if you're not there by December 31st, you can just forget about 2020. You're, you're not going to be relevant to any of the discussions going on in the region. I mean, what, how serious is this? And, and what, what would you be saying to these technology participants that they should do as it relates to getting their logos in a box? No, I absolutely I agree with you 100 percent there, Frank. I think given that they're only giving out five licenses, this is not something they're going to be doing every year because the market simply won't sustain it right um and as you as we talked about earlier in the in the podcast this is going to be a, a model and a proof of concept if you like for a rollout to the rest of the region um and to be able to be in there and lock yourself in as one of those brands on a box as a part of that tech stack in singapore is absolutely crucial because once you have that then the proof of concept is there um and they're not going to be opening this up again in any time soon. So I think it's, um, you know, it's a bit of a, um, a race um, to see who can get in there and, and start to work with all of these new brands that are coming through um, and getting out there and, and sort of understanding that this is the, the little um, door that's been left ajar in this market, um, which for a long time has been closed. Um, so it is the opportunity. It is the kind of, it has to happen now um, type rhetoric that I think they have to think about because, um, you look at things down in Australia, for instance, um, Vault and Judo and, and Zinja and those sorts of banks um, that have recently just been given licenses. Again, they came in and said, look, this is what we want to do. This is how we want to build our bank uh, and I need people to do it. Um, but I don't really want you sharing that with, um, with my competitors. Um, so you've seen it happen in uh, Australia. You've seen it happen in the UK. Um, you will definitely see it happen in Asia. The difference is that Singapore will be the starting point and um, really the only kind of one shot at this um, to get it right. And, and you're bringing up a, a subtle inference there because there's definitely, it, it's not only the IP, but it's the people, you know, and there's a certain, it, it, it's interesting now just watching the, the incredible movement where between the consulting firms and the regulatory entities where they're just getting consumed by the, the entities that are going to be the likely applicants and assumed winners of, of, of these licenses, which is, uh, which is incredible. And I think, you know, it reminds me, and I'm going to use this as a subtle segue to another conversation where, uh, you know, like in the States, whenever they would give um, these licenses to the telcos, because there was always a fixed number of licenses. So when one of these came up, it was a big deal yeah. that, that you bought it because it just simply wouldn't be there. And, I had a very, very interesting conversation this week with a, a senior government official here in Singapore. And I asked them directly, I said, who do you see as the dark horse in this in terms of, you know, like, you know, people are really intrigued by the battle between the ride shares and DBS. And there's some other participants that are fascinating to watch. And it was really interesting, Jerry, because he said he was the participant that no one's focused on 
And at the same time, it is really their last hurrah is Singtel. Right. And he brought up an interesting point because he said, if you look at the characteristics, so if, if the assumption is that Singapore is a POC, it's a proof of concept. His point was, he said, when you look at all of the models that are out there, even with the ride shares, in an overbanked market like Singapore, they're really focused on the underbanked. Whereas with Singtel, because of the ubiquity of mobile, they can actually go to the unbanked. And, and his opinion was that Singtel is the only entity that could make a clear black and white statement regarding financial inclusion. And again, while that doesn't resonate in Singapore, given just the demographic, when you start to go out to Malaysia, Indonesia, and everywhere else, that that financial inclusion play, that's where this becomes potentially really, really powerful. And his statement was, if Singtel gets this right, this could be the reinvention of the entire company mm. from a telco into to something completely different. What, do, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. I think people forget sometimes that Singtel has a, has a digital wallet um, that they played around with in Dash. Um, right. And it kind of whimpered out a little bit, um, which was an interesting. They tried to tie up with the with the local cab company, Comfort Delgro, um, and that didn't necessarily go too well because I think they were almost ahead of their time a little bit um, in the launch of that. Um, Singapore wasn't quite ready for that um, QR code style payment system uh, at the time when they launched it. Um, I don't know whether they're a little bit gun shy now in terms of um, coming back and going strong in the financial services sector. I think you're right to say that they are probably um, one of the dark horses that not a lot of people are talking about. Um, and they certainly have the ability to roll this out because as you say, they have the market. They have the, the distribution network there and ready to go. Uh, and that's one of the key things that um, people in this market are going to be looking for. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting one for me because I, I don't know how gun-shy they are around financial services given what, what happened with Dash. Um, it's still around, it's still operating, but nowhere near as um, as readily used as, as any of the other wallets in the market. Um, so whether they have to then kind of put that away in a box and rebrand and come out with something else um, is going to be an interesting one to look at. Um, but they're going to have to have to think about how they position that in terms of the market. Because one of the interesting things, I think, Frank, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, was, you know, traditional players, in a sense, have the customer base, they have the, the technology and the sort of know-how, um, and they've got the defensive nature that they need to be in it to win it. The, the new startups don't really care about how things are done. They just want a really great experience, um, and they really want to get there and, and be um, delivering for their customers. And they don't really care about how banking works. They want to bring non-banking thought mm -hmm. to this. So a technology play around a telco is an interesting one because they have that kind of, um, as you say, ubiquitous nature and brand. People know and trust Singtel um, or M1 or whoever it might be, Starhub. Um, so they've got a, they've kind of got, already got a foot in the game. Um, so, you know, they'll be very well positioned to, to put themselves um, forward for this. Um but they do need to get it right because you only get so many chances at, at building out a digital bank and, and then a digital wallet. And if you don't get it right, customers can turn off pretty quickly. Um, interesting stat from our study that we did recently, a global um, digital banking report, 46% um, of customers said if they have a good digital experience with their bank, they're going to give them more um, 
more AUM over the next 12 months. Mm. If they have a bad digital experience, that drops down to about 15%. And in Mm. fact, 20% of those Mm. bad digital experience customers said, well, I'm going to actually pull money out from you. Um, So so a good digital experience can have a really great impact on a wider banking and total relationship. So there's there's an opportunity for for a Singtel, for instance, to if you have a good digital banking relationship, you tie up the phone, you tie up the banking account, you tie up the ride share, you tie it up all through that one brand if you can get that experience right. Well, Jerry, what, I, what, I, what I'd like to do on that note, because I think I could keep you here for uh, a couple of hours, we, we, I'm just looking at the list of questions that I would want to continue to ask you. And selfishly, what I'm going to do to the annoyance of our listeners is I'm going to uh, get you on the calendar uh, ASAP, because obviously this is a very, very current topic uh, for the region. You know, we haven't even gotten into products, pricing, what markets, when. Uh, the other thing I, I, I want to table for, for next time is to to your point and, and also going back on data, um, you know, the way that Facebook actually causes the, the paradigm of a self-optimizing process where you start seeing things that you want to see. Uh, regrettably do, you know, what does it mean for the role of a fiduciary in financial services? So if you see someone exhibiting reckless behavior, do you just keep feeding them reckless behavior? You know, so if they're a trading junkie or just making very poor investment Mm. decisions, you know, how as a fiduciary do you intercede? So what what I'd like to do is if I, if I could table that for, for next time, but I want to ask you one last question before we wrap up here today, what, what are your thoughts and recommendations to, uh, going back to what we said earlier, so you have everybody now, a lot of Faustian bargains, you know, a lot of folks who you would never think would partner are partnering now ahead of December 31st. What do you say to the other, you know, the, the other 67 applicants yep. that don't make it, you know, what do they have to be thinking about in 2020 if they don't have a seat at the table? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question because it kind of gets to their... Uh their business planning for the next three years, really. Um, look, I think there will always be a place in the market for um, what we say sort of um, alternative providers. So um, people that work on the fringes and disrupt at certain areas of the customer experience journey in banking. Um, a lot of those players, the better work they can do and if they can continue on the work that they're looking at doing, they will get on the radar of some of these banks or new players um, eventually because of the the ripples that they're making in the market. Uh, and no pun intended there on ripple. Um, mm-hmm. It was, um, it's, uh, I, so I think, look, you're going to have to be in it to win it. That is, the, that is the key thing I think we're taking out of this. And that's why it's so exciting at the moment, Frank, that we're having all these conversations because you really do have to be in it to win it. You can't just sit on the sidelines. Um, and going through this process will do a couple of things. It'll get you on the radar of the MAS, which is fantastic. Um, it'll get you on the radar of all of the banks. Um, and it'll get you to a spot where you, as a business, have a very, very clear plan about what you do, how you're going to do it, and what your rollout strategy will be. Um, so I think being involved in it is, a, is an absolute, it's almost an imperative. If you want to be around in financial services in Singapore or indeed the region, this is something that you really should be sort of looking at and considering very, very strongly because it's going to give you a lot of um, insight into how how that will work. Um, so I would say to those guys, um, the other 65, 67 people that are sort of bubbling around, 
um, if you're going to do it, take it seriously and, and really go for it um, because you never know what might happen out the other end. Well, on that note, Jerry, very, very good advice. As, as, as we've been hearing as well, we've been telling folks you need your logo in the box. And and with that, let's let's table it here for today. This has been a fantastic conversation. And again, we could have gone uh, you know for, for at least five times as long, and which means we'll we'll figure out a way to still here to come on five more times. So again, thank you very, very much for your time here today. We really appreciate Fred, it. It's always a pleasure talking to you, and uh, thanks very much for your time. And again, a very, very happy birthday to you. Enjoy your 29th birthday. And, <laughs> and to our listeners, thank you again for your time here today. And uh, we wish you a wonderful weekend. And we look forward, as always, to your input and comments. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week on Unhedged.